webinars on um, the softer side, I should say, of, of reliability engineering, but I think it's as or more important than most any other topic we have. Um, I'm Fred Schenkelberg, and thanks again for joining in today's webinar. We got a pretty good turnout, so I'm happy with that, and it's a pretty good topic, <clears throat> and it's also one that I'm most likely going to come back to over and over again. Uh, as uh, Carl and I get closer to getting ready to finish off our book we've been working on for a couple of years now called the uh, Reliability Engineering Management Book. It's a draft and there's a link down there on the lower right hand corner where you can uh, view and, and comment on and, and please do on the draft chapters and uh, you'll need to log into Ascendo Reliability to gain access to that. But we look forward to you, uh, if you haven't already, uh, providing your input and feedback to that. Today I'm going to talk about um, a couple of steps that you can take to make a difference in your organization and the way it approaches and thinks about reliability. Right? Reliability is, at the end of the day, judged by our customers, the people that use the products that we create and they determine whether it's lasted long enough to be a value for what they paid for it or what they traded for it. Um, does it do what it's supposed to do, but it, does it do the right things that they expected it to do? And does it do that for long enough? <clears throat> Excuse me. Reliability has a in engineering definition, which I know all of you know about, it's the probability of success over a specified duration with a particular set of stated functions in a known environment, right? Now, our customers don't always read or, or understand the definition that we use when we create it. So their definition is, is often much broader than what we usually would call it. But uh, I digress. That's a subject for a whole other uh, uh, webinar. The heart of a culture, of an organization, and I'm narrowing it, this down to the set of behaviors for a, a cohort or a group of people around making decisions. It's how do we frame, gather information, um, adjudicate, and decide. <clears throat> And it's those decisions which are the points of inflection and, and defining moments for how a culture behaves or how a culture influences those decisions I, is probably a better way to say it. So we're going to talk a lot about decisions and, and how we influence those and, and the points that those occur. Now many of you have heard me say that reliability happens at the point of decision. Do I go with vendor A or vendor B? Do I use this part? Is, it, is this part robust enough or resilient enough or sturdy enough? Or is it, do I have enough derating on this component? Um, am I taking a risk by going to this manufacturer for the lower costs for the product's performance in the field? And so on. All of those decisions, while not directly what many reliability people would say are reliability decisions, influence or impact the, the reliability performance of your product. And so it's those decisions and the more direct, is it durable enough? Is it going to last long enough? Is it a low enough failure rate? 
very direct decisions, those all are the ones we're talking about. Now, decisions don't occur in a vacuum, right? Decisions occur in the context of the person's mind. What's, what are, what's driving them, one, to make the decision? <clears throat> Excuse me, is it obligation? Is it uh, uh, timing? Is it part of their role or their job? Is it perceived as part of their role or their job? Is it, uh, the, uh, or the sets of motivations that are more self-driven? What's in it for them is one way to think of it. And we'll, we'll expand that. Uh, here shortly. All right, so let me get you over to the chat window. You know, why do we make decisions, you know, concerning reliability? Uh, and I'm trying to think if I phrase this correctly. Why do we make the decisions concerning re reliability we make, right? So think of your role in the organization and what decisions do you have and then how do you make those? How do you, what's the bits and pieces that go into making that decision? What, what drives that? Yeah, good morning, William, thanks. And customer satisfaction is a, you know, oftentimes quality and reliability people are considered the voice of the customer. Um, yeah, Sean, it, obviously many products have a, a requirement that it should last 10 years, or it should perform this function for su such a duration so many times. Yeah. We're given data. Perfect. <coughs> yeah, excuse me, I got this something in my throat, so I'm going to have to. Cost, yeah. Welcome, Charlie from Mass. All right. I mean, the, the, we're going to expand this some more, but I want you to think about that we make decisions. Do we test 200 samples or three samples? And sometimes the constraints are, well, you get two samples. Um, force that decision to occur. Well, what do we do with that information? How do we make the most of that circumstance? Do we decide to do the test that really does require a lot of samples, or do we alter our approach and make the most of what samples we do get. Those are decisions that we make oftentimes. Now in product development, there's many, many other decisions and we're gonna get uh, get into those. Good. All right, now I, I'm using slightly different um, imagery this time because um, this weekend I made my first batch of home-brewed beer, just a little gallon of, of uh, wort, I think it's called right now, as it's slowly fermenting. and I was adding a, a, a yeast, a yeast culture to the mac, to the to the brew, basically, so that it would convert the sugars into alcohol and then off gases a bunch of CO2. And it made me realize that it's all of those little pieces, <clears throat> the chemistry, the biology, um, elements of a culture that create a result that you're looking for. Yeah, excuse me. And I can't see those things, right? I can see the um, and experience the the results of those bacteria and yeast and and chemistry that's going on, um, but I'm not able to 
actually view it. Now, I suppose if I had a good enough microscope, I could. By analogy, we're also dealing with an organization that has a set of behaviors and interactions and occurrences, constraints, and generally a set of rules. Now, the hard part where the analogy breaks down is that yeast, given the right conditions and sugar, is going to create alcohol. Whereas in, in an organization, having a reliability requirement, having a set of constraints that allows us to do some testing and so on, may or may not <clears throat> result in a reliable outcome, right? The culture has some rules or some activities or some things that are belong to it, and it generally guides the results, unlike the biology or chemistry, which pretty much is a given. If you do the right things, you get a result. In better cultures, in better sets of organizations that have well-defined sets of expectations and behaviors, then you get the results consistently. But not all cultures operate that way. And so that's why I went to these um, uh, chemistry-looking type uh, imagery. The idea of the reliability culture is the entire set of, of decisions and all of the um, information and, and data and expectations that surround making those decisions, right? And it's not just the reliability or quality professionals that make these decisions. Like I mentioned earlier, it's an electrical engineer deciding what size of component to put into a particular location on a circuit board, right? Does it have enough um, robustness, ability to withstand, say, a, a power surge? without failing as a way to build some margin into the product. Yet, they also have to consider price and they have to consider cost and do they need to do more research, which takes time and so on. All of those elements are the context around that decision of which we in the reliability world tend to have a lot of influence, right? Now, the hard part is, is that we're not involved with every single decision that affects reliability. Yet, kind of jumping forward a little bit here, is that we can set up the circumstances such that the person making that decision has the appropriate information and appropriate set of expectations to make the right decision or make an informed decision, I should say, which hopefully is always for the uh, achievement of the reliability outcome desired in context with all the other constraints that we have. And so the, the culture is the way that we talk about reliability, that we set priorities for it, that we balance it with other constraints and, and priorities and objectives. And it's, it is really that set of decisions that an organization collectively and individually make that create the results that we get. That's what I mean by a reliability culture. So Kenya, Kiana, um, the, the download for the slides is using some fancy PDF uh, documents because of the way I create the documents. You have to use the latest uh, PDF readers uh, or Acrobat uh, readers. Um, I think it's up to version 9 uh, in order to view it. And uh, most other viewers choke on the uh, animation that's built into it. So uh, it's pretty common. 
uh, it happens. But if you still have a problem with that, send me an email and I'll, I'll see where I can sort out another um, platform for it. Yeah, and you know, you know, it's a good point, William. I hadn't thought of that, is that the changes in the ISO standards is looking at the consideration of context, right? It's not enough to say, oh, I'm going to make it a, a lower weight and have a requirement for that, and then how do we measure that weight? Well, it, that lower weight has to be in, in balance with all of the other criteria that we're judging this product by. So what's the context? What's the, the situation that you need to balance that objective with, right? And, and sometimes it's pretty straightforward. You can achieve multiple objectives simultaneously, but we're not always prescient enough to set appropriate objectives that we can always meet. There's sometimes we design ourselves into a corner and something has to give. Well, how do you make those decisions? That's a result of the culture within an organization. We'll bring this on a little bit further. Now, it's really, really hard to observe somebody making decisions. It's not like their brow furls and that gives you some clue that they're thinking hard or something like that. It, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but it, I don't think you're going to see decisions being made. But we do get to see the results of those decisions. Which components did we pick? Which vendors did we pick? But then we also can ask questions, right? We'll talk more about that later. And well, why did you pick that one? Well, what was the consideration there? Which is not the best way to observe the culture, but it's, it's a way to get peel back a little bit about why are we doing what we're doing, right? Now, sometimes it's by remembering that everybody doesn't look at the decisions that are being made from the view as a reliability or quality professional, or even from the customer's perspective. Keep in mind that as you're seeing different behaviors, it may be inconsistent with stated objectives and it may be inconsistent with um, the stated reasons for the decision. It, it's not that they're trying to hide anything. It's just that our actual behavior has got many, many different drivers to it. And being aware of that helps us then to understand, well, what's causing these decisions to head the way they're heading? And how can we reinforce the ones that are beneficial to the reliability performance of a product? Or how do we dissuade or, or uh, diminish the forces of the ones that are, are driving strictly to lowest cost and least reliable product, for example, if that's not what we're trying to achieve? I, the hard part here is then stepping back and being a third-party observer, right? assessing the culture. Now, there's a couple of different ways, and, and I have in the lower right-hand corner, there's a, a couple of links to back to Ascendo Reliability, and one of them is called Reliability Maturity eBook, and it's free for people that are members of Ascendo, which is also free, right? So you have to log in to the site to, to get a copy of that if you don't already have it. But it goes through a couple different ways to either quickly or thoroughly, um, it's a trade-off obviously, uh, assess the culture of your organization. And it really hinges on this idea that there's a, um, and we broke it down into five different stages of maturity. And it goes essentially from just totally ignoring reliability other than just blaming the customer for, for any failures and just not considering it 
in the development or in the servicing of a product to reactive we find a failure and we do we deal with it one way or the other to proactive where we anticipate the areas of weakness or failures in a product and balance which ones are a business sense acceptable and and have rarely been surprised organizations that are very proactive in their maturity tend not to be surprised by failures that occur and they do due diligence to identify and avoid them. Now, every organization has almost every element of the matrix in some point or another, yet overall, organizations tend to fit in what one stage of maturity. And, uh, and it's a great way to just read through the matrix and say, ah, we're in stage two. These are the hallmarks of what we're doing. And it gives you a rough idea where you're at what's driving the behaviors. Or you can go through and conduct an assessment and the maturity book uh, has step-by-step -step essentially of how do you go do that? How do you conduct the interviews? What questions should you ask? How do you review that? And so on. And in either case though, you understanding the culture is a starting point, but now start to convey that to a larger group within your organization. It's basically holding a mirror up to your group and saying, this is what we're doing. This is why we get the results we get, or this is a contributing factor to the results we get. And so that assessment provides a, a structure for you then to identify where you want to get better, right? It identifies weaknesses. It also identifies strong points and allows you to move forward on that. And so the, a step in Understanding your organization is assessing it, right? Observing it and assessing it. And so you know where you're at, right? So how would you describe your organization, right? And I, I talked about it. I imagine that if you're here in, on a reliability topic, you don't have an organization in stage one that's just completely oblivious to it. But stage two and three are typically reactive is the way I would generally describe those. One's a little better than the other one, but they're still reactive. They find an issue, they deal with it. Whereas four and five, the higher stages of maturity are more proactive. They spend a lot of time dealing with anticipating failures and dealing and designing those out or mitigating those or minimizing those. So would you say you're more reactive or more proactive? <clears throat> I understand it's not a great amount of detail there for you to make that decision, but what happens when something goes wrong? Yeah. So the folks that are saying proactive, that's great. You must have been listening to lots of webinars and podcasts and stuff like that. <laughs> or you have a good culture you can work on. Yeah. And, and realize it's also contextual, right? Sometimes you will be reactive and sometimes you will be proactive. But in general, overall, how are you doing? Yeah, exactly, Mark. All right, good. And it's, it's the, really the first step is be aware of how your organization works. And it's, it, this maturity matrix is a tool to help you understand that, right? To get it done. 
and it's yeah if your team's already helping you move that's great chris that's that's the idea yeah parisha firefighting yeah classic um i've even had people say that we're getting better at solving problems faster right we're, but as soon as a customer sees a failure we we do the failure analysis we got it really streamlined we really do it but the trouble is is that you've had the problem already the failure is built into your design and you got to deal with that yeah and it varies every organization is slightly different the vast majority of organizations i've dealt with have been in a reactive sense and they're trying to say how do we get out of this how do we get ahead of what's happening in the field so that we don't we're not surprised by a problem. Um, there's no guarantee that you'll never be surprised, but there are certainly steps you can do to be more proactive to reduce the amount of surprise and late Friday afternoons and weekend work and all the other stuff that a firefighting team, a reactive organization, tends to do. All right. So here's three, and I'll go through these pretty quick, is the ad hoc culture. I've run into organizations that essentially just blame the customer. If something goes wrong, it's the, they did something wrong, right? If a vendor does something wrong, they blame the vendor. If there's really, we're designing a great product, our designers are good, we got, a, we got one prototype to work just fine. Um, of course, reliability is important. Yet that they uh, never fund it, they never use it as a, a criteria to to select a vendor or a component or to review a design. Um, they do, do little to no testing other than what's absolutely required, say, by a regulatory agency. And it's, of course, it's reliable. We all think about it. And it's essentially that idea of it's just a banner on the wall or just lip service, right? And the results these organizations tend to get is pretty random. They get whatever happens to work that day, right? And so as the constraints are more on low cost, they get lower cost results, and they may or may not hit reliability. It's not coherently thought of uh, and considered uh, in any decisions. And so it's, it's not a priority other than it's just a banner on the wall. Now, there's some organizations that are actually like this, and it's pretty sad. Um, I had one director say, of course we get good reliability products because I only hire great engineers. Well, they might be a really wonderful, you know, software engineer or mechanical engineer, and, but not too many of those folks actually get taught how to assess or make decisions based on how well it will perform over time, right? They may learn stress-strength calculations, but as soon as you add a new material, but it, well, where are those boundaries? How do I know where the limits are? What kind of margin do I really need to put on this thing? Well, that's a reliability decision. But if it's just left to randomness, then some engineers will probably do a great job and others will not. And I certainly have seen that firsthand. Um, so it's the ad hoc cultures is, um, hopefully you're not in one of those. <laughs> so I doubt it if you're here. No, a testing culture is, and I ran into one organization, the project they wanted us to do was, they said, we, in order to get a product um, ready to uh, launch before we go into manufacturing, we have to accomplish these 68 different tests. 
And like, wow, that's a lot of tests. Why do you have so many tests? Says, well, every time we have a field failure, we do the root cause analysis and we sort it out and we add a test so that it never happens again. Well, over five, six years, they saw lots of different things fail and they added a lot of unique tests. And some of which, and we made the argument that some of those tests really didn't apply anymore because they weren't using that material set or they weren't using that design feature or it was testing something that just didn't have the potential to even fail in their product. So why are you doing that test? Now, you have the um, witness to something like that. So it's very, very easy to add a test, yet it's very, very difficult to turn it off. And um, there are cases where it gets pretty out of control. And these guys were in that realm. And so everything they did was to make sure they, they passed all these tests and they ended up with pretty good products yet they spent an inordinate amount of time in in the lab in the testing chambers in in all these different criteria in order to pass this litany of things they had to accomplish and they had great debates when something would fail saying it wasn't relevant anymore that it was still good enough but they didn't do the testing to answer that question is it good enough is it going to last long enough it was just pass fail and so they weren't really learning a whole lot from their testing and so the project was is well how do we get out of this how do we remove the ones we don't need how do we turn off the ones that aren't relevant anymore and how do we streamline this so that we only do testing when it makes sense right so that, that culture was pretty interesting. You also see variants of this where it's a checklist, right? The, the design reviews and the stage gates have extensive checklists of, did you do this? Was this analysis done? Was the simulation run? Uh, did this test get run? What were the results? And, so, and it goes, check, 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 check. And the focus of the organization is on accomplishing the checklist, not on designing a reliable product. And so the decisions and, and funding and everything goes to supporting checking off things on the list as opposed to actually thinking about what you're doing. And uh, so it can go a couple different ways. Again, it's this one is actually more common um, than the ad hoc one, in my experience anyway, um, mostly because I think groups in this realm recognize that it's, it's not helping them to create a better product. Our, our vendors, our material scientists, our, 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 our suppliers, our customers um, continue to find unique new ways for our product to fail that isn't in our existing testing uh, scheme and isn't in our checklist. And so we just keep adding things and then continue to get behind. And so it's, it's not a usually good situation to be in. Another one is the reactive culture. Now, this isn't necessarily bad. It's bad when it becomes the only way it happens, right? There's a little quote down on the left side there that I actually heard. Um, I asked them, so what, what happens when something fails? Well, it only becomes a problem when that failure is like a batch problem or a manufacturing problem and we shut down the line and if a vice president is calling us, right? If it's just a shutdown on the line, we, you know, it's no big deal. We just deal with it. But the only time we really have to spend money on solving a problem is when these two conditions are met. 
And that was the ultimate of reactive culture is they just, it, we have lots of failures, whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's only important when somebody says this is really important. Now, other organizations, you know, pride themselves on their ability to do failure analysis, right? And which is good. I mean, it's not a bad thing to have that skill, but it's, it's where this becomes a, a culture or an approach to creating a reliable product. A problem is that when it's, it's, you only wait until you have failures before you make a decision related to improving reliability. Right now, you know that we don't get near enough time and or samples or, or stresses applied to a product to ferret out everything that can fail. And if we're designing for cost or for some other criteria without considering the impact on reliability, waiting till we see a failure is kind of like uh, throwing the dice. We might find this issue. But if you have a 5% defect rate because of some design characteristic, it's a, it's a chance, a good chance, that you won't find that until it gets to the field, right? And then, or you might not find it till late in the program, and then you delay the program to solve this major problem. So it's this reactive culture of waiting till you have evidence of a failure before you move forward that is the not good part of it, right? It's the ability to do failure analysis and to learn from failures is a good thing, right? On one hand, yet if that's the heart of how you develop a reliable product, it's very difficult to achieve the high reliability that many of us want. All right, so I saw a couple of questions in. So William, I'm not sure, I think I'm not quite sure what it, you mean by the question you posted there. Proactive questioning in the context of how is whatever is supposed to work is working. And, and I think of proactive as like FMEAs, right? We think through how could something go wrong and then we prioritize and take action on it without having actually seen the failure. Uh, proactive is um, in the context of uh, in the decision to pick a component, it's what kind of capacitance does it have? How does it respond to our circuit analysis? And is it got enough resilience to dielectric breakdown, right? Is this, is it withstanding voltages strong enough for our application, right? It's, it's that and piece. Is it going to survive in our product? Does it have enough margin? when I select it. Now, as opposed to, I consider, you know, its cost, its, its functional performance, and, and its ability to be delivered by the vendor, and does it fit on the board? And then later we find that it, it fails. Why wasn't that considered when we selected it? So it's, it's that subtle shift of when we consider its reliability that shifts something from reactive to proactive. Now, every electrical engineer generally picks components that are going to be robust. And I know in generalizing, any engineer wants their product to work. It's that, is it consciously considered when it's being created, when, when that decision to pick a component is there? And it's kind of what I'm going at there.
Yeah, and Christine, it's you know, it's wear out questions versus warranty. Is is that in those FMEAs or in the early risk assessment parts, is you have those discussions with engineers. Is well, how will this thing fail? What are the weaknesses area? What's do we know enough about use conditions to model the wear patterns? Right? And we may get involved in doing an, an analysis of how customers use their products or expect to use their products or in, in quantifying the wear patterns and rates of wear in order for an engineer to make that decision, you know, is it good enough or not? You know, does she have enough information to make a balanced decision with all the other constraints? That's where it shifts to proactive. If those discussions are occurring prior to us actually seeing a failure, it might be a hunch, it might be a risk, it might be an uncertainty that shifts your decision making into making it proactive. Let's see. So, um, Pramod, I'm looking at your question. How many times we investigate not only technical root cause, but the systemic, I think that's how it's pronounced, root cause to answer why we're, we're not able to capture it? Excellent. A, a colleague of mine way back at HP um, uh, had really thought through this and, and he had a very similar concept where it's like, yeah, we can find that there was the wrong chemical composition in this capacitor that caused it to, to fail. Um, and we could do all the chemical analysis and cross-section and everything else. And we can find the physics or chemistry root cause. But why did... Somewhere, someone along the line made a decision that that this material, this chemistry, wasn't appropriate for this component. And what, where, where did we miss that? How did we not ask that question early on? Um, how did that not... Um, the context around identifying weaknesses in products, how did we miss that, right? Or... or the, the more evil way that it happens is like we ship a product knowing we've got all these defects in it. Why did we make that decision, right? What was the, the context of ship it today to make sales knowing that we're going to have a 10% field problem in it? And sometimes it's pretty convoluted, but it could be that we needed to be on the market for market share, yet if you didn't have enough information about the cost of those failures that would wipe out your market share because of reviews and product returns and a potential recall, um, why wasn't those why weren't those risks weighed appropriately? What information was missing? Right. So those those are bits and pieces of that. Yeah. And, and Bart, you're exactly right. I mean, the, how does the Part of the design is, and we know capacitors, and we know we have this 5-volt voltage, and it may vary slightly, so we pick the right component. But there's lots of parts that, if we ask the right questions, can get after what do we, what do we know that is uncertain, what is unknown to us. And you've all seen it. It's a new component, new material, new vendor, new market. Those all throw a lot of unknowns at us. And so building that information making it available and, and acceptable to ask questions about those things is a difference in the culture, right? Rather than a reactive culture where you just wait for a failure and then you go figure it out, usually without enough time. So what can we do to change these cultures? Let's, let's talk about that. First step, listen. 
right? Just pay attention. And you're in a design review, or you're in a launch you know, uh, discussion, it's an all-hands meeting, um, it's a staff meeting, hands hallway discussions, it's an engineer talking to a vendor on the phone or in the conference room. We talk about making decisions all the time. About what's the background on this? What material set is this? Uh, how does it perform when we have high voltage situations? All of those circumstances are opportunity to us to figure out is is our or it is within our organization is, are we making decisions based on gathering information related to the reliability performance or the quality performance right so if my my favorite one is that um, you overhear a conversation and he says so how do is it a reliable component and the sales engineer says, yes, it's very reliable. And that ends the discussion. Well, where's the evidence for that? How will it work in our circumstance? And so on, right? If instead the conversation is, all right, sales rep, we're, gonna, we're looking at your component. How would it fail in our situation? Here's our circumstance. Here's how we're using it. What's its most likely way to fail, right? Usually sales engineers don't like answering that question, but be persistent because everything will fail. But if you don't know how it fails, it's very hard to know when it will fail. And then you ask, well, when it will it fail under these circumstances? And then what's your evidence? And we talked about some of that in, in a previous webinar. But if those kinds of conversations are going on, independent of you doing it yourself, right? If other people in your organization are asking questions that lead to gathering the right information to make a, a a balanced decision, well, that's one nature of a, of a culture where if the decisions are more along the lines of lip service or not mentioning reliability at all or concepts within reliability at all, it's a, a different indicator of what's going on, right? So, but things like going on, right? Stated priorities. And our, our program director stood up and said, quality is number one, reliability is a requirement. Uh, oh, by the way, we have to get time to market costs and functional features out there too. As opposed to, uh, and they say all of these are important, but time to market is critical, we have to focus on that. And I actually had one program manager tell me when I asked her to rank order these in priority, she said time to market, time to market, time to market priority. She said, what were the other ones? And that was, evident throughout the organization. Cost was not a factor. Functions, you know, they came and went pretty fluidly on the requirements document. But if you function information launch date, there was hell to pay, essentially. And so reliability and quality would just all over the map, essentially. So reliability and quality would just all, they were, they had thresholds, right? They, they had some level unstated that says if it's bad enough we're going to talk about it only if it doesn't impact time to market which was unfortunate so the stated priorities can be aligning with reliability or not priority and that was unfortunate part is the stated priorities aren't always what's supported yeah reliability is important we have to hit the reliability goals the reliability is critical to our customer satisfaction but we're going to fund getting it out on time. We're going to fund using the lowest cost parts in our, in our studies and so on. 
right? So the, the decision makers are, especially the ones dealing with funding and priorities, are making decisions to set the prior, to set the guidelines for what we're going to do, what the entire team is off to go do. And it's pretty easy if somebody's saying, do, support it. Ready yet? Is it ready yet? Is it ready yet? Or is, can you cut the cost? Can you cut the cost? Can you cut the cost? They get the message. It, most everything else doesn't matter, right? Whereas it's, if we're going to cut costs, what's the balance with the quality or the functionality or the reliability? It is a subtly different way of balancing the decisions versus just focusing on one to the detriment of the other. And so listening to not only what is said is supposed to happen, but to what actually happens is, is getting to happen, getting you closer to what's going on in that culture. And then a, another thing to consider is individuals make decisions, right? Individual culture. And some really don't want a, pro, a product to go bad, right? It's personal to them. They will take it personally if, like, you've been in FMEAs where the designer is taking offense because everybody's telling them that their design is going to fail these 20 different ways. It's personal, right? They're putting their effort and, and their skills on display when a product goes out the door, right? And some people don't. They're just after the bonus, right? They create a good product. They get the recognition for it. They get it out on time. They get the bonus. We cut the cost by 10%. I get promoted. Some people are motivated by extrinsic things. Other people recognize them. Others are motivated by their personal uh, workmanship standard that they have is a rough way of saying it. So as you work with individuals within your team, consider that what they work for can vary, right? Some are really just looking to get promoted. Some are because that's important to them. Some are looking for that parking spot out front or, or, or just because they want to do a good job. So as the realms around us, right, all of those ele elements in an organization that if they want to do a good job, how we make decisions have to match or balance with what's important to the individual, right? So as you're listening, as you're looking at how things are being done, it's what well, what's behind this? What is actually driving the behavior that you're seeing? Right? So that's just paying attention and listening. Right? If one of the tells of reactive culture is that there's an um, emergency meeting, uh, a customer had a failure, and we need to solve it, and we have a response to them very quickly, so everybody drops everything else they're doing, and we do failure analysis, we get the vendor in there, we stop the line, we do all these wonderful things like a fire department. That's a tell that you're in a reactive culture. And it was willing to be regularly surprised. We say we don't like it, yet the person that solves the problem when it comes in from the field is the hero. They get promoted. They ran the failure analysis. They sorted out the issue with the vendor. They get the recognition. Whereas the 
engineer across the hall that designed a perfectly working module for the system that had no failures whatsoever gets nothing, right? It's the person that's the chief firefighter that gets the accolades. That's a reactive culture. All right, next step, ask questions, right? Ask questions. Always be asking questions. There's just too much to learn that we, we can't afford not to be asking questions. And this comes from my own uh, experience, plus seeing it in many organizations, is part of asking questions is, oh, have we ever used this material before? How does it behave when it's cold or it's hot or in our company ran is customers environment in south of Florida, for example? How does it behave south of Florida in these other areas? It's just, I'm always curious how things fail because I think it's fascinating. So I ask questions about that and I go do study on it and or research on it. And I, I look things up and I ask questions. I'm not afraid to ask a question just because I'm interested in it. And, and it, that's a skill that you should, everybody should have, not just the reliability and quality folks, but everybody. I tend to ask questions related to reliability and failures, but th that might be just me. But, but simply asking questions, well, what happens if, or where does this go? It, it doesn't have to be only during an FMEA. How does it behave customer's environment or OEA during a failures be just failure analysis? Let's ask questions all the way through so that we ask questions better understanding of the boundaries and limitations, but also of what we know and don't know and what is deemed important across that organization. What, are, what is it that we know and don't know about the reliability behavior of our material sets and, and systems? Other ways to do this is, is more probing, right? Um, the caveat here is that you may make people uncomfortable, right? But the five whys approach is not intended to put somebody on the spot to blame them for, for making a bad decision. It's to understand what's the context of that decision? What was the driving force? What was the balance for that decision, right? It's all of those kinds of things that we can start pushing back in more detail on of Right, vendor, if you say it's reliable, how do you know that? Right, that's a probing question. Where, where's your evidence and the reliability of how, how is that going to work in our environment? Those are questions that are part quizzical, right, and curious, but they're also probing. What is it they know behind the statement they're making that supports that? And can we judge that? Can we evaluate that? Probing questions are more, uh, I mean, you see it naturally in failure analysis approaches, but think of it as a, an investigation. Why did that happen the way it happened? And what's the context for framing the decisions to pick this vendor versus another vendor? Uh, we might not like the answers to it, and the people who are asking the questions may understand why we're asking it, and they may not be comfortable with that, but it's, it's a, a way to pry out what is really driving why we do what we do? Driving probing questions, and then annoying questions, right? These ones you you really should avoid. If you say, "Why did you design it that way?" Right? You just blame them of creating a bad design, as opposed to a probing question. But what was the context for making that decision? 
right? How do, what information was missing or what was the driving force behind that? What, what was the context there? Um, the annoying questions, I think you, you get the idea here, is that there's a limit, right? And, and avoiding the blame game, um, not including a judgment or a conclusion in the question already, uh, all those kinds of things. And oftentimes satirical questions can be very hurtful um, if, if not fully understood by all participants. And that's very hard to do a lot of times. And I, I'm certainly guilty of that. The, stay with the questions where you, you are trying to expose the ability to learn something, right? Either for yourself and or for the organization so that you can move forward with encouraging people to be inquisitive in order to improve the ability that they're making that door for that you are trying value. And, and this is another ebook. It's the Finding Value ebook in the lower right hand corner. Um, there are so many different sources of value. <clears throat> the easiest one is just that we have reduced the failure rate. And if we have less failures, the warranty cost goes down, right? And customer satisfaction goes up. Those are the simple ones. The, anything to deal with money is obviously an easy way to measure value. <clears throat> but time is another one. The classic story of this is um, if an organization is driven by time to market, heading to the holiday season, we got to get into production and time to be on the shelf. Time to market is the driving force. Well, if we can look for ways to create value that reduces the risk of a program delay or saves us time, like HALT is one of the hallmarks of a HALT program is that it, it's pretty darn quick. And it gets us a lot of information early so that we can solve it. And it, it, it's been shown over and over again to reduce the chance of finding new issues late in a program and delaying it. And so the value part in your organization may be not just money, right? It may be time, it may be feature set, it may be innovation, it may be um, throughput on, on a production line. It may be the quality of the product and the perceived quality and so on. Aligning the context of the decisions we make for reliability with what's of value to the organization and to our customers then helps us to actually shift the performance of using reliability thought processes and including reliability considerations and decisions because it helps us save time, for example. Right? Um, I had one organization that they, they kept track of the big field issues, the, the major issues that uh, created line shutdowns and lots of scrap and redesigns. And some were recalls, some were not. And they actually tracked those. They had like 14 of them over 10 years and, and at millions of dollars of cost per. But they also had hundreds and hundreds of other issues that came up that didn't warrant the full tracking. And so part of the value they were looking for is, is how do we avoid these market recalls, right? Now they're rare events, so it's very hard to do that in a, and show the return on, you know, we, we cut the chance of a recall down by 5%. Well, it'd take us 20 years to find out whether we actually hit that number or not. But what we did is, is look at 
what are those factors that in, increase the chance of a recall, right? And by, uh, by materially changing those factors, we could argue that we changed the chance of a recall happening. And by looking at where those decisions were made that were systemic in the recalls, it was a drive to cost usually, and, and not doing the due diligence to vet that change of the design to get the lower cost, that caused the problem. It was almost always because it brought in a new failure mechanism. And so including HALT, for example, early on in that type of analysis or more rigorous modeling helped us to understand the risk involved with looking at cost as the driving force. And so it changed the culture slightly but it was focused on what was important to the organization, right? Yeah, cost was a part of it, but you lose all that benefit of cost if you do a recall. And so by connecting those to a change in behavior early in the organization, we use that source of value to motivate a different discussion within that organization. Again, the motivations piece of it, right? In the in an organization, I think one my the one that made this come home to me was I was at Hewlett Packard and the procurement organization uh, routinely had a, an objective of reduced cost of procured components by ten percent. So year over year, cut costs by ten percent. And uh, and I, I'm sure many of you heard this story before, but a, a, a procurement engineer came to my desk and asked me you know, um, how do I determine the impact of a change in failure rate if I go to this less expensive component? And he was gonna cut the component's price in half. To make a long story short, if he bought the most expensive component that was 10 times, or I'd say five times more expensive than the existing one, it would save him more money because of reduced warranty costs. Well, he was upset because that he would not get his bonus. If because the procured price went up, not down. And he was upset about that because he was motivated by the bonus. So that story went through the organization and we changed the procurement organization's bonus structure by finally getting to somebody high enough in the organization's hierarchy to understand the long-term benefit of buying reliable components at a reasonable cost versus just buying the cheaper parts. And by shifting the bonus structure to include warranty costs in the procurement formula for their bonuses, all of a sudden those discussions about, well, we'll worry about failure rate later, that, well, that won't matter, or let's not ask those questions, um, changed dramatically. So bonus is one motivation, and there are others. So be aware of what's driving the, the behavior that you're seeing, and it can be stated or unstated. It's often unstated. And then the final step in this is connect it to the customers, right? Connect it to your business. If it's good for customer satisfaction, it's not always the easiest thing to monitor and measure and, and, and connect to doing an FMEA, for example, because it's such a long-term return before you see the results. Whereas cost, we can measure today, and feature set, we can measure today, for example. But connecting these things in a coherent way 
to customers and to our business objectives helps people understand why reducing the failure rate makes sense, for example, or not. It may go either way, but it's by including the cost per failure, for example, uh, of unit ship puts it in the same context as bill of material cost, and that connects it to the cost of, of, of warranty, for example, and customer satisfaction. If you have good customer satisfaction numbers that you can relate back to the importance of reliability performance on staying with the brand, you can use that. You can quantify that and connecting it back into these discussions. There's way more about this in the uh, Finding Value ebook of these uh, connecting value back to your organization or to the, to the reliability aspect. So here's a rhetorical question for you. Um, probably not, right? If it's not going to add value, especially to your customers and to your overall organization, well, let's not do that. And, the, and I ran into this where you have that 68 different tests and we spent all this money setting up chambers and prototypes and, and all these stuff that we did. And some of them were completely ridiculous when you looked at it with any criteria. Why are we doing this? It doesn't help us learn anything. It doesn't help us make any better decisions. It's purely reactive or something that we don't even do anymore. So let's get rid of it. That's an extreme example, but a lot of what we do is habit. And so as we make changes to the culture and it, it connects to the business and our customers' expectations around the value provided, um, those are much easier changes to justify. But you need to make that connection. So sped up here a little bit because I'm watching the clock. Um, obviously, I love talking about this stuff. And I've written about it. Carl Carlson and I have got a draft of an engineering book that talks about the culture at great length and, and assessments and um, how do you build a reliability plan. Those kinds of things are in that book. But underlying all of that, is this culture, this concept of how does your organization go about making the decisions they make to achieve the results they get. Now, if you don't change how decisions are made, you're probably going to get very similar results from one program to the next to the next. If you go about it, understanding that you need to change the culture around those decisions, then you have a lever. And you can accomplish that by carefully listening and understanding how your organization works. You can do that by asking questions. One, to understand where these decisions are constrained and how are they constrained and what's the motivations in those uh, contexts of how decisions are made. And then finally, by using that lever of value. If you have stated objectives or strong vision about achieving a certain reliability performance or quality performance in the market um, or any objective, is if that's of value to you in connecting the way decisions are made to that value helps align those, those behaviors the rest of the org organization takes because they can see the connection. By If we do halt earlier, we save time to market and we reduce the number of failures we experience later. That adds value or reduce the failure rate, for example, and so on. And then it's continue to monitor the culture and in connecting it to the value that's created. 
that's how you change your to the culture. So with that, I think I'm pretty much out of time. Um, but thanks, Bart. Appreciate that. I'll take a look at. I, I saw a couple comments or questions go through there. I'll stay on the line and address some of your comments and questions. If there's any additional questions, please uh, type them on in. Uh, I know some of you probably have a schedule to keep, so you're probably heading off. Thanks so much for attending. Um, there's a handful of ebooks up on Ascendo Reliability that you can get a hold of. Um, get those and enjoy them. Send, a, send your questions over or comments. We always appreciate it, especially on the draft uh, ebook or the draft book on engineering management. Uh, Carl and I are actively going through the comments and questions trying to improve the book. And so we really appreciate your, your feedback as we try to make this a, a document that uh, becomes very, very useful for you. So with that, let me uh, go to the conclusion slide here. And let me see where my questions are. Is there anything I need to address? And yeah, Charles, I'm not sure if you're still on the line. I'm not sure I understand the competitor product less reliable piece of that. Yeah, William on the intrinsic one is those interactions. Yeah, and those interrelationships. In silo organizations, there's a different dynamic than one where you're often co-located and there's not strong silos. But yeah, you're definitely right. There's different priorities in operations or in procurement or in, in design. Um, and understanding how those motivations occur and how that information flows is critical. Yeah, and Sean, you're exactly right. I, I had a, a client once describe the, the, an approach of considering the component that fails is it could be it's a bad component. They're a bad actor. They instigated the failure and they failed. Or they're merely a victim. Something else in the system failed and it caused this one to, to, to manifest as a failure. Like it sent a, a voltage spike into a capacitor and, it, and a capacitor failed. But the voltage spike conditions are still there. So you replace the component and it fails again. It's not a bad batch of components. It's a bad design. Right? Or it could be the hero, like a fuse. Right? It, it mitigated the failure from getting worse. It didn't initiate it, but it, it sacrificed itself, uh, kind of got in the way, and, and took the brunt of the, of the stresses. Yeah, and you're exactly right, William. The value overall in an organization um, can be pretty clear and consistent and that's generally in better cultures um, that makes it clear it's but the value to the individuals can vary dramatically even in a very coherent culture it's it's a matter of, of aligning those things we often talk about aligning objectives right well an, an organization run by managed by objective really only works if the value system also aligns, right? Um, might be a topic for a whole nother book. Let's see, happy holidays, everybody, that's uh, in that realm. Um, thanks for, for attending. Uh -huh. Uh -huh.